Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's SA Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor and the Student Affairs Program Coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, we are excited to have Teddy Chastain from Davidson College and Jared Logan from Virginia Tech University as our guests to discuss the recent Netflix release of the movie Hillbilly Elegy. Welcome, Teddy and Jared. Hello. Hi. And Teddy, I'm just noticing that your name is totally spelled wrong in the script that I sent. I'm sorry. It's spelled correctly for the rest of the script, so that's only a few points I'll knock off against you. It's fine. I appreciate your um, patience and tolerance. Please continue to be patient and tolerant through the rest of this interview. Of course, of course. (laughs) Um, So before we get to discussing the movie, one of the things that we want to do through this podcast is just help people connect, learn a little bit about each other. And so this is a chance for us to get to know you a little bit better. And while the podcast is focused on current events and issues and trends, um, you know, the work that we do is all about connection and our connections as professionals, our connections with students. So with that in mind, since we're all more than just our jobs, Teddy, would you mind starting by telling us just a little bit about yourself and kind of what you're doing now and how you got from being born to where you are today? You don't have to go into that much detail, but a little bit about your journey. Being born. Um, Yes. So I am from Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, that is where I grew up, spent my entire childhood. Um, that is in between Chattanooga and Knoxville, for those of you who have not intricately studied an East Tennessee map. Um, Cleveland's not that big. Um, I went to Furman University for undergrad. That is in Greenville, South Carolina. Graduated undergrad in 2015. Love Greenville. Uh, love my time at Furman. Um, I worked professionally for a few years um, and was just trying to figure out my way and decided to pursue um, student affairs in higher ed. And so I enrolled in the Clemson program in 2017 um, and graduated in 2019, um, which is how I met you two lovely people. Loved my time there. trying to figure out what I wanted to do, of course, like every other person who enrolls in a master's program for student affairs. Uh, Lots of functional areas to choose from. So um, dabbled in a few things, um, worked with orientation, um, worked with community engagement and student leadership, worked with alumni affairs during my time at Clemson. And ultimately, uh, as I went through my job search, um, I connected um, with the annual giving team at Davidson College. Um, I had an interest in alumni affairs after doing an internship um, actually at my alma mater at Furman um, and so decided to pursue that and development wasn't really something that I had my eye on but I did really like connecting um, with the alumni sector um, and it just felt like a good fit. Davidson felt uh, familiar, I guess is the only way I can really describe it. Um, I'm sure that has to do with the fact that it's similar in size and mission to Furman in a lot of ways. Um, but I've been there for about a year and a half and really enjoying it there. I live in Charlotte, which is about 35 minutes south of Davidson. It's the biggest city I've ever lived in. Um, of course, I've been living in it for now, gosh, what, nine months of pandemic times, but still just really enjoying 
um, living there and in that area of North Carolina. So it's been a good fit so far. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Jared, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in Lake Lure, North Carolina, um, which is part of North, uh, part of Western North Carolina, I'm sorry. Um, so it is between Asheville and Charlotte, so very similar to Teddy. We both live in between major cities. Um, so again, grew up in Lake Lure, North Carolina. Um, I attended East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, where I graduated in 2016. Um, I took a year off and actually served as a substitute teacher. So I was a substitute teacher um, from pre-K through 12th grade, um, really, fo really focusing and working with um, particularly first grade and then first grade randomly juniors in high school and then also like senior level English. Um, so that's really where I spent most of my time. Um, I knew I wanted to go to grad school at some point. I thought I wanted to be a counselor at some point. Um, so I enrolled in Clemson's master's program also in 2017. Um, so Tay and I are from the same cohort. Um, so did that, super excited. Um, graduated in 2019. Um, with it's within counselor education so it kind of fits perfectly into what I want to do. Um, when it came to um, selecting a job post master's, um, you know, I, I really struggled trying to balance and trying to figure out what that would look like. So in my time at Clemson, I had experience working in an academic college. So I oversaw um, an alumni mentoring program within our College of Business um, called Tiger Ties. Um, I also had experience working with um, parent and family programs within um, a new student family programs or student transition office. Also had the opportunity to work um, with Teddy and student engagement. Um, did some fraternity story life things as well. Um, and also worked with some conduct pieces. So kind of all over the place and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So um, I really tapped into my undergrad experience working with orientation um, and those programming as well as working with family programs at Clemson, which led me to Virginia Tech um, where I work directly with our special population students. So I get to really combine my desire of help, helping and welcoming incoming students into an institution, um, but also using that social justice background that I got at Clemson to really think about their development and also their transition um, from home to working, to being at an institution. Um, Virginia Tech is very similar to Clemson in a lot of ways. They're actually in the same division. Um, so I think a lot of people think that they're uh, the populations are the same, but they are vastly different, which is really fun and exciting and constantly something that I get to um, engage with and learn more about. Um, and I think that's what drew me to Virginia Tech is very similar to Clemson, also very similar to my undergrad institution. Um, I live in Christiansburg, Virginia. So I live in the town over from Blacksburg, which is where the institution itself is. Um, Blacksburg and Christiansburg are your very similar traditional like college towns, particularly Blacksburg. So I live on the side where I think a lot of faculty and staff live in Christiansburg. This is where like the, the target and things are. Um, so I never got into the larger city um, realm. I just really stay in like a smaller town kind of area, um, but I'm enjoying it and I'm enjoying my time here so far. Great. Well, thank you both very much. Jared, can you talk a little bit about, okay, so we, we know the career part. What about who you are outside of work. What are some of your hobbies? What are some things that maybe right now you 
are reading or watching or listening to. And then also, if you happen to have a favorite quote or something, you know, sort of words of wisdom that you try, right. that would be great. Yeah. So I think, so the things I do outside of work, I really enjoy cooking and baking. Um, those have been really important to me and also been really nice because the weather in Blacksburg slash Christiansburg is generally cold. Um, so I get to make very like comfort food, lots of soups and things like that. Um, lots of breads and baking. So things that are very comforting I get to do, which is really exciting. Um, and I enjoy doing that. Um, what I'm reading right now, um, so my office is really into the Enneagram. Um, I think it is an obsession of ours at this point, um, which is totally fine. <laughs> I love it. Um, so I'm reading The Road Back to You, um, which is a book literally about the Enneagram. Um, it's written by Ian Morgan Crone and Suzanne Stable, or State Step. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, so really getting into that. Um, for those interested, I'm Enneagram Type 2. Um, so I'm the helper, which is really fun. Um, but really into that, um, what I've been watching, so I have um, drip, getting, gotten back into my um, teenage years of watching Law and Order SVU. That is a thing that has come back into my life magically. Um, I think part of it came back actually in Michelle's Law and Ethics class when we had to watch it. And I was like, I miss this show so much. Um, and also because there's a lot of episodes that are around college and how um, they deal with um, sexual misconduct and things. So always interesting to me, it's also because I had read Missoula in grad school, which also I was like, I didn't know all these things. Um, so really into that. Um, I'm also watching a teacher on Hulu, which is probably not something that people should be always watching, but it's very intriguing to me. Um, but yes, I'm watching a teacher um, and also just kind of going back and re-watching um, old Disney movies like that are very nostalgic to me. Um, it keeps me... I, it keeps me youthful is what I like to say about that. Um, so what I've been listening to, um, I wish I was a podcast person. I've tried it. Um, I'm not always that person. Podcasts I do listen to are Brene Brown because she is a goddess and I think she's amazing. Um, but music wise, I'm listening to a lot of Sam Smith. His album came out like two months ago. And like, to me, it is still new. So I just like keep listening to it over and over again. Um, and then a quote. So if people know me, you know that I'm obsessed with quotes. I literally change quotes on the lock screen of my phone whenever I find something new. Um, so I, I recently changed it in the past week and a half. Um, and it's a quote by Virginia Woolf. Um, and it is, um, if you don't tell the truth about yourself, you can't tell about other people, um, which has kind of been something I'm trying to like read and understand um, and interpreting it in very different ways. Um, but yes, I love quotes. So if anyone needs a quote in their life, I will send them to you. I literally keep, I like will find one on like social media somewhere and I'll screenshot it. I'm like, this is the quote that we're going to save and we're going to read it later. Um, but yes. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Jared. Teddy, how about you? What are your interests and maybe a quote that you turn to? Yes. Um, the pandemic year has been the year of being outside. So I, I, I was already someone who liked to spend um, my downtime outdoors when I can in whatever way that means, whether it's going on walks or living in Charlotte. Um, there's this area called the Whitewater Center, which is like the, I think it's like the national practice area for the, the national whitewater team um, to come practice. But there's a ton of like um, hiking trails and mountain biking trails and just outdoor area where you can hammock. Um, 
drink a beer, whatever you want to do. So I love going there in my downtime. Um, but walks have kept me sane, especially this year, but every year. Um, so, so that's one way that I like to clear my head. Um, I am that person that enjoys working out. I sound wild, I know, and weird saying that, but I, I really enjoy it. And especially again, this year, it's been a total release. So um, I have a community in the gym that I go to lucky that it's open right now with us being able to wear masks and, and safely social distance. So I hope they get to stay open trying to support the local business in that way. So um, those are definitely top pastimes. I've also gotten into a little side hustle of watercolor house portraits. Um, I took a skill pop class. So skill pop, I think is something kind of regional to South and North Carolina. I think a group of gals started this business where essentially they hire out people who have special skills to teach classes. And so I took one last December and I really liked it. Um, it's very technical. It's not so much freeform watercolor. I wish I was good at that, but I'm, I'm not. Um, it's very technical and very detailed and I really enjoy it. And so I've been doing that a little bit on the side. Um, so that's kept me busy around the holiday season for sure. Um, so those are some of my pastimes. Um, I try and be someone who really enjoys reading. I'm gonna be honest. I like audiobooks better a lot of the time. I am a little bit of a busybody, and so I, it's just sitting and doing something um, that takes a lot of attention right now. I just don't have it in me. I'm going to be honest. There are times when I do. Now is not that time. Um, so I've been listening to a lot of the books that I've been quote unquote reading. Um, two of my favorites recently um, that I've really enjoyed that are both around therapy. So it, it's a good mixture of there's some lighthearted comedy in both of these books, but um, also has some really heartfelt, touching um, commentaries about therapy and the human experience. One is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Um, I hope I said her last name right. Gottlieb. Gottlieb. Um, really, really enjoyed that one. And then the other one is Group by Christy Tate. I believe that was just the book of the month pick in the Reese Witherspoon book club, if you keep up with that. Um, I really enjoyed both of them. Um, and, and those were, were good reads. Um, enough depth uh, without um, too much intensity in a time where I feel like we're all a, a little overwhelmed. Um, let's see. I am a podcast junkie completely. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I feel like that has become a personality trait at this point, and I'm okay with it. I've accepted it. Um, I do tend to err on the side of true crime, but also... Um, I try and vary it up. So I, I, I will say that two that I've really enjoyed recently that um, aren't so much quote unquote like true crime, but are just really interesting, compelling stories. Uh, one is Dead and Gone. And that is by um, uh, Payne Lindsay, who is one of my favorite podcasters. He did things like Up and Vanished and he has a few others uh, that are more on the true crime sector. Really interesting. Um, it's about uh, the Grateful Dead um, and about uh, people who used to follow the band around and some some crimes that occurred and, and trying to solve some some um, unsolved mysteries from the time when the band toured. And then the other one is Do No Harm, and it's a um, it's through Wondery, but also I believe NBC News had something to do with it. Really interesting story about um, child protective services and parents and when essentially parents um, are incorrectly accused of 
um, abusing their children after an accident where they had to take their child to um, the emergency room and, and kind of what happens after that. And so really interesting there. Um, let's see what's left TV. I'm going to be honest, y'all. I, I don't have it in me for like a Grey's Anatomy level, you know, like 10 seasons type of show right now um, or anything that I haven't seen. So I keep Gilmore Girls on repeat. I know that's just so bland of me to say, but it's wholesome. It kind of has a holiday vibe to it, even though it spans every season. I feel like it's the fall or the holidays there all the time. Um, so that's kind of been my security blanket. <laughs> well, I think that's okay. And it kind of, in some ways, might align with Jared and the Disney movies. It's about that comfort, you know? Yeah. Right now, when everything is unpredictable, we need safe places to go to. And so if the girl, Gilmore girls are your people to hang out with, I think go where you get what you need. So thank you. Um, do you have a quote? Oh, shoot. I totally forgot. Um, I have a few favorite quotes, um, but one that has been on my mind recently, um, there is an artist that I have a few prints from that I just adore. His name is Brian Andreas. Um, discovered him a couple years ago. They're really quirky illustrations and, and, and quotes um, with a little bit of like painting involved. Um, but he, he posted something um, a couple months ago that's really stuck with me that is, um, I've, I have never yet seen love ask if this is a convenient time. And that just hit me. And I have, I've held on to that. Um, again, especially in a season where, you know, there's just a lot going on and, and it's easy to, in times of anxiety and stress, um, I don't know that we're all the most loving in this year. Um, so that that's really been something that I've held on to and tried to remember. Great. Thank you very much. I'll go look up his art after we're done. So I appreciate that. Um, okay, so one last question, and then we'll kind of get to the hillbilly elegy. So I have this theory that is completely fabricated. It is not tested in any sort of scientific way. So join me. <laughs> um, I think that there are fall people and there are spring people. Uh, particularly in higher education and student affairs, student affairs adjacent areas. I think of fall people as um, the ones who get so excited about the doing. You know, come on everybody, let's build, let's create, let's put the thinking into action. I think of the spring people as being the ones who get energy from reflecting, and planning for the next whatever, the next program, the next season, the next academic year. So if those are your categories to choose from, um, and either of you can go first, do you think of yourself as more of a spring person or a fall, knowing that we probably all carry some of each in us, but is there one, one season that appeals to you more than the other in the uh, academic rhythm of the, the year? This is a really good question. And actually it's, it's funny to me because in my role it's almost the opposite for me. Uh -huh. That like in the fall, I'm coming off of orientation. So like I'm coming off of orientation and welcome week programming and we're about to wrap up family programs. So by October, 
programming is done for me. So like that's when I get to do like reflection. We like take the assessment from this summer and we like make changes and I propose changes for the students that I serve. And the spring is actually when I'm planning. Like in the spring is when I am, I am in it um, planning. So next semester is gonna be really fun. So like in the planning and figuring out and navigating things. Um, but so, but I'm gonna use your categories and your definitions. Um, to define who I am. Um, I, I am a spring person. Um, I, I enjoy seeing, seeing the work of fall happen and the achievements occur. So like I, there's a lot, and I know there's, obviously there's commencement that happens in the fall, but like the larger one usually happens in the spring semester. And there's this sense of like, tradition really happens in spring. Um, so I'm, I think I'm 100% a spring professional, but in my current role, I'm a fall person. Yes. Perfect. Very good. Thank you. I'm very similar to Jared in that um, for development work, uh, the fiscal year ends June 30th. And so there's a big push um, late spring, early summer. Um, and also within that, I work on our reunion programming um, from a giving perspective. And that also typically occurs in June where alumni come back to campus. Um, I know a lot of people do reunions around homecoming, but that's not the way Davidson sets up their calendar. So similarly, I would technically be planning in the, in the spring and, and doing with fall, but I will also follow in Jared's footsteps um, and use your analogy, Michelle. I, I think I was a fall person in grad school, but I think I've changed to a spring person as a professional. I don't know. I, because I was doing more student focused and student forward work in grad school, I loved getting to collaborate and connect with, with students and with colleagues in that way. And, um, you know, in grad school, you're just trying to pick up the pieces and figure out how to make something work and plan something for the first time or the second time. And then you're done. Um, if it's a cyclical once a year type of thing. Um, but now in my work, it's with it being, you know, more long-term, I like the challenge of reflecting back on, on what happened and one celebrating, but also too, I love analyzing how to do something better, um, and have time to think about it and, and start fresh, um, and, and plan to execute things in a different way. I really appreciate that. Cause I, I, honestly was just using my own lens of fall and spring, but you make really good point that it depends on the work you're doing. My fall is somebody else's spring and somebody else's summer. And so um, that's good. I, I'm the same way though. I'm a spring. I, it's not that I'm not ready for students to come back and for the year to start, but I really get excited. I always, when I worked in housing, I was always excited in the spring because the students who moved out were not the same students who moved in in the fall. You know, the yeah. amount of growth that happens, especially with first year students. And just to think about how did that happen? You know, what did our communities do and how did they foster growth or sometimes stifle growth depending on the community, but <laughs> um, well, that's great. Thank you both very much. I just had a thought. I just had yeah. a thought, Michelle. So. I, I'm just thinking because in the work that I do, the fall is when like all these things are being enacted. So like welcome week, we're coming off of orientation. 
But I agree, and it kind of reaffirms my spring thought because the students that come back in the spring were not the ones that I saw at Fall Welcome Week. Like those are not the same students. Um, they're not the same students that, you know, and also for that, like we're recruiting a new orientation team and we're taking teams, we have more than one. Mm -hmm. So like, that's very true. That really affirmed my spring thought because you get to see a different person the following semester, yes. Well, and what you just said made me think families at home have got to be going, who is this person? You know, <laughs> what have you done with the student that I sent there in the fall? So for better um, or worse. Oh, I know. Great. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all again for sharing about your experiences and your perspectives. Um, so I've been looking forward to this conversation about hillbilly elegy since we first started talking about the book and then found out that the movie was going to be made. Um, you know, I have the list of questions here, but let's just see where we go. With yeah. So um, I know you've both read the book and um, have seen the movie. Do you want to talk a little bit about your own identities, backgrounds, experiences, and why this, the, the topic, the, um, setting in Appalachia, why that resonates with you to begin with. Tay, do you want to start? I can. Um, yeah. So uh, I have shared that I'm from Tennessee. Um, you can take whatever stereotype from that that you, you would like. Um, East Tennessee has definitely got some, some major Appalachian uh, roots. Uh, Queen Dolly is from right up the road, um, and Sevierville, uh, Gatlinburg area, that's about two hours north of me, um, and my entire family uh, lives in Cleveland or within about a 30-minute radius of Cleveland, um, and I'm the only person who does not live in the state or, you know, within that, that distance, and um, I am a first in college student, so I'm the first person in my family to um, graduate from college. Um, my family's background is, um, you know, lower working class, um, especially my grandparents. Um, definitely a lot of poverty in my family and generations past, um, and um, just a lot of what I consider Appalachian derivative culture within, within our family structure in a lot of ways. It's interesting to see the generational breakdown from me to then seeing how my parents have, have lived their lives, seeing how their parents live their lives and whatnot. And each iteration is really different, but I mean, there is that line through it no matter what. And I have always been fascinated with where I'm from and like, you know, who my family members are and just trying to get this information. I remember in high school realizing that there wasn't a family tree anywhere documented and people didn't really have any information for me. And so I got the free trial for ancestry.com because I was just desperate to figure out where, where these people from, like, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman. So clearly there's some sort of European connection, like, you know, where, who am I? Um, 
and and family history has always meant a lot to me and to be honest I still haven't gotten that far gotten a little further than when I was in high school but there's still a lot of mystery around it and I think that also connects in with um most of my great-grandparents couldn't read or write and so just like the lack of documentation is just so ingrained in the socioeconomic status of my ancestors and so on and so forth and so man just I think I felt like there weren't a lot of people who had that background and, and that interest, but also had been given so many opportunities to attend college or to uh, pursue a career that they actually enjoyed or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and reading Hillbilly Elegy, I think that was one of the first things, especially uh, before entering grad school, where I met so many other first-gen students who you know, their story wasn't identical to mine, but there were so many pieces that I could pick up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have that in common. Hillbilly Elegy was one of those things where I was like, whoa, there are other people who, you know, we don't have the exact same story or the exact same views, but you're one of the first people I've like read about that I totally understand some of your sentiments and your, and where you come from. So um, that's a bit about why I was attracted to it. Um, in the first place and, and why I have such an interest in it. I could talk for forever, but hopefully that's a good snapshot. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so I, um, again, grew up in Western North Carolina and not all of North Carolina is a part of Appalachia, but Western North Carolina is. Um, and, you know, similar to Teddy, like I, 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 I got really interested in what my family history was in college, actually. So um, one of the classes I had to take was uh, like marriage and not marriage, family and society. So we had to do a family tree. And, you know, when I initially did it, I was doing it based on my black identity and like trying to figure out like where are these connections, where were things lost in process and to realize that my family's not left the area of which I was born and raised in ever. Um, and literally when I say ever, I mean like my dad grew up in like the very rural side of Western North Carolina and my mom grew up in the town side, but those things are still very similar and how those two thread together um, is really interesting. And Tay had mentioned the generational like things that kind of flow through that we have different experiences, but like it is fully thread, threaded through. Um, one of the things Tay and I always talk about is food um, and food in Appalachia and like how that's something that is so threaded in what we do. And, um, you know, actually Teddy and I have connected a lot in, in this process because I'm also a first generation student and that's actually how me and Teddy became friends. We were sitting in class um, our first semester and I'm like, we were talking about first gen, she was like, that's me. And I'm like, same. And then the friendship blossomed and grew where it was. And then to then find out that, you know, we started talking about Appalachia and I'm like, I'm from Appalachia too. And me, here comes me and Teddy and we're both like, we're both first gen Appalachia. Like we should just like learn all these things, which had really like pushed me forward to learn more. Um, and particularly why I'm interested, why I was interested in Hillbilly LG um, was the first time I actually heard of it was in my second my second year of grad school. Um, I may even, the book had maybe mentioned once or twice, but like to really sit in a class and listen to it um, and to hear people talk about it was very interesting to me. And I was like, I need to read this so I can like see, is there similarities, right? Um, which of course there were. There are a lot of similarities in, you know, the experience of being 
from Appalachia, but also for me, what's really continued um, my interest is, you know, what store, like, is there some intersectionality tied to my Black identity and being Appalachia, and from being from Appalachia, and like, how are those things going together? Um, and, you know, really is also what wanted me to watch the movie so I could see and experience, wait, one, where did they go? Because, you know, you can't just go anywhere in the country and be like, this is Appalachia, because we're very, we will critique that very quickly, because you can tell there's a, there's an environment, there's a feeling, and uh, my family grew up working class, so I would, I would know what that looks like, and I would um, be very drawn to it, and also, to, you know, to hear JD's experiences, again, and then for me to be like, Yep, I've had that experience. Oh, mm -hmm. that's definitely something that has happened. It was very affirming to say like, okay, so like very similar to what Teddy was saying, I'm not the only one. There are other people that have had this experience and it's not something that I need to, ashamed is not the word, but it's the word just coming to mind, like it, to not be ashamed of not knowing certain things because of the reason that I'm from. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you touched on the friendship that the two of you have because, um, you know, when you're talking about first gen, when you're talking about um, social or economic class, when you're talking about being from a certain region, those things are not necessarily visible. And the fact that you found these points of connection and then digging just a little bit, it's like, me too, me too. That's my experience as well. I, I just, I love that part of your story and the way that um, you've engaged in dialogue around all of the different pieces that you share and some things that you don't share too. So I, I'm really glad you mentioned that. So I know that each of you read the book before you saw the movie. Um, when you think about just the book and J.D. Vance's, whether it's how he told his story, what he included, what he didn't include, his own take on the communities that he came from. What are some of your takeaways from the text? For me, I think what, what I really resonated with was really the social mobility that it's, that was tied into what he was talking about. And like, you know, knowing that it's, it can be difficult to, it is, is and can be very difficult to get out of Appalachia in a lot of ways. Um, not to say that it's completely impossible, but like, you know, to know that with support it's possible. Um, and it's something that, you know, when I was reading it, even though I had at that point completed an undergraduate degree and was almost complete, like a few months away from being complete with a master's degree, to know that like, yes, I still resonate with that. I still know what that felt like to know that you may not get out. And like, that, that is something that I've, Fear is not the word, but something that I was always nervous about. I'm like, am I going to be able to get out of this? Like, I want to explore the world. I want to see it. And knowing that sometimes there are systems in place or things that exist socially that don't allow you to move up. Um, it was, it was, it was nice, excuse me, to see that he was able to do it. And we'll talk about other things later, I'm sure. But like, I think the way he described it was very interesting. Um, and I have lots of thoughts about how he described it in his, um, his memoir. Great. And I think Jared, with you just saying memoir, I think people, I, I, 
I am not yeah. defensive of JD Vance or the book too much, but I do, I've been in some conversations where, you know, I know there's a lot of criticism of the book and I welcome that criticism because I, I definitely see some of my own thoughts reflected in said criticism where I struggle. One of my takeaways is like, this is his story. It's his story. It's, and to be honest, I'm sure there was some strategy in the book, maybe not being released, you know, around the 2016 election. And, you know, I, I know that that's, I'm sure why it had a lot of um, success and that people were just, um, depending on your political view, trying to, to figure out a, a sector of the United States that maybe had never been, quote unquote, listened to before, especially in a political frame. And so I, I suspect that's why it had a lot of traction in 2016. Um, but man, I, again, for this to be one of the first books that, from what I have seen, take off that's about Appalachia from like a memoir perspective, um, that's not too academic. You know, I, I've seen all kinds of kinds of people, you know, posting about reading it that maybe don't even enjoy reading. It's, it's not unapproachable because it's a memoir. And there's a lot of bravery in sharing that type of story and knowing that you could be one of the first people that someone feels like uh, this book is accessible to me and it's going to be my first time digesting some of this information. And so, you know, there was a risk in it being a memoir and him sharing his story in the way that he did. And so, you know, I, I could get into all the all the little takeaways from the book, but when I stand back from it and kind of think about it from a you know, a 500 foot view or something, if you will. I, I think it's a pretty bold, bold choice of his. And, and I'm glad he did it, even though there are things to critique, certainly. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, um, you know, both through conversation with you all and my own reading of the text and then reading what other people thought when they read the text. And um, I think one of my areas of disappointment is this need to make it either a good book or a bad book. Right. Instead of yes. a complicated book, because our lives are complicated things. Correct. Yes. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about the critique a little bit, but I do appreciate what you're saying, because I, I used it in class a couple of times and I kind of went back and forth on it. I think the year that you all were in class, it, it might have been the first year I used the book because it was fairly new, right? I think it came out in, well, it would have been because I think it came out in 2018. So that would have been while you mm -hmm. all were there. Um, and this this need to sort of good, bad things. It's just, it's so simplistic. And especially in a field where we work with human beings mm -hmm. who are all complicated in their own right, why would we expect someone's story on the written page to not also be complicated? So, right. um, so I appreciate that. I appreciate the, there are things to be celebrated about the book. And it doesn't have to just be sort of, well, there's this problem, so no one should ever read it or listen yeah. to this person. Right. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there is some critique around it. And, um, you know, we can kind of 
do the comparison with the film in a little bit, but as you were, and if you can do this, I don't even know if it's possible to do it, <clears throat> but as each of you were engaging with the book in your own first experience, well, one, were you aware of the critique when you were reading it? No? Good. That's good. Well, it's not good or bad, but from mm -hmm. the purposes of my next question, it's good. Um, was there critique that you found as a reader or was it so powerful that there were pieces of your story being told that things that maybe upon further reflection you do have some critique about, it's not that you missed it, right? But that you were so, I mean, the first time you're seen, that is powerful. And so it's easy to bask in that and then read through the other stuff and it's like, oh, that's not my experience and just celebrate the moment without worrying about, now let me find flaw with this as well. So my question is, did you, were there pieces of your own critique that surfaced when you first read the book? Or did those things come to light either upon further reflection, discussion with other people or hearing, you know, other scholars or book reviewers or whatever bring critique to it? I think I identified some statements and some sections of the book where I was like, mm, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, Michelle, your description was exactly me and that I was just eating it up because I was like, wow, oh my gosh, yes, yes. Like the part about Cracker Barrel is going to stand out in my mind for the rest of my life where he takes his friend to Cracker Barrel and he thinks it's a big deal. And his friend's like, oh my gosh, what? This isn't that great. I was like, yes, I feel seen. Um, not to say that one section about Cracker Barrel should, you know, just throw out any critique, but I was just so uh, enamored with the story and seeing myself in it and seeing other people in my life in it that I, I was happy to acknowledge that there were some things that I didn't necessarily agree with, but I was not paying attention to the point of it ruining my experience or changing my mind. Yeah. So oh, mine's hard because I, when I read it, very similar to you, I was like, yes, this is the thing I can like, I have family members that relate to this. I have friends that I grew up with that I can see this in and I experience it. Um, so when I first read, when I read it, I was like, yes, I can relate to the majority of this. Cracker Barrel was 100% a thing. That is like a thing that I was like, why are you not excited? <laughs> like, this is exciting. Um, but also, I think once I had read it, and I'll, again, I'll point out because I was in grad school when I read it. So, of course, my, my, so I, there's two different things that happen. So like, from a personal standpoint, I'm like, this is great. My critique says, for my personal self is, this is also not my story. Like I have identities that are tied into this that do not relate to his experience, right? Um, also, he has experiences that I don't. So like, I don't have them that has dealt with addiction. So that's not something that I relate to. But again, I can take pieces that do mean something to me but he's not talking about the black experience in Appalachia. So that's just something that I have to, you know, deal with. Then my scholarly brain went off because <laughs> again, second year in grad school where like, I'm like trying to figure out all the things. So my scholarly brain went off and I was like, 
you know, this is great. And I'm sure students that are from Appalachia will get this and they hopefully they can find themselves in it, in, in his statement. Um, but also there's some things of like this, anyone can get out mentality that I kind of talked about with social mobility that I was like, that's not exactly true. Like there had to be, there's some, there are some people and things and um, institutions that are set up to help you move there. Like I know that, and I can speak for myself, like I know that if I didn't have teachers that told me I could go to college, I wouldn't have went, right? If I didn't have, especially as a first generation student, like if I didn't have guidance counselors, teachers, other people in my life that were like, college is something that you could do, this is how you do it. Um, and then if I had family members that were like, yes, like we will support you in this. Yes, this makes sense. Um, if I hadn't had that support net and system, I wouldn't have done it. So I have a lot of critiques around this. Anyone can get out because sometimes that doesn't work. Like, you know, I, there are people that are in Appalachia. We know that depending on what part of Appalachia you're in, like there's, um, there's industries tied to that, right? So sometimes if you're in Southwest Virginia, you're thinking about coal. Um, where I'm from in Appalachia, you're thinking about true like farming. So like produce and things like that. Well, my dad grew up doing that. But like, as I got older, we, I mean, I, I did farming until I was 11. And then one day I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I just like, I'm, like, I'm not going outside to do this anymore. I'm done. That's not an option for other people. For other people, it's like, this is the family business. And this is how we eat, how you eat, how you will survive. And that's all you know. And there's no one else guiding you in a different direction um so so yes his his thoughts of like well anyone can get out and like well the reason you got out is because you had some you had some support whether you believed it or not you had some support that as when we talk about the film that got you and gave you steps to get to where you are now and jared i've loved talking to you about the book um just because like I am a white woman and so I have lived the white Appalachian experience in so many ways and so I've really valued what you have shared about your experience as a black man in Appalachia and I've, I've gained so much from that so I'm really appreciative of you sharing and it's a perspective that I don't think I've engaged in in serious conversation with a, another black man or woman from Appalachia. Right. And I just really value that and have okay. been really grateful for you sharing that. And, you know, kind of what you're saying with the get out mentality. I also think there's a major over oversimplification of everyone in Appalachia is lazy and everyone in Appalachia is taking advantage of the system and everyone and, you know, whatever. That being said, I mean, I have family members who have struggled with addiction um, and, 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 you know, I can list, like, I have family members and people in my life who check all the boxes of those stereotypes and then I have plenty who do not. And I think anyone who is from this region can, can say the same. And so, you know, that is one place that, that I would get caught up um, in as well of just, you can't you know, say that an entire group of people without, you know, making a nod to all the identities and complexities about the people within this region, because it's a lot of people, like you can't put them all in one box and just call it a day. Hi, everyone. This is the end of the first part of this two-part episode.
discussing hillbilly elegy. We've talked about the book up to this point. What we're going to do in two weeks when we come back is focus on the movie and also how this applies to student affairs. Thank you so much for listening. As always, today's Essay Today podcast was brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without producer Erica Lee. As always, Erica, much gratitude and thanks to you. My name is Michelle Botcher. It's been a pleasure to host this episode. We look forward to you joining us in a couple weeks for more discussion. Until then, take care and have a beautiful day.